following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Please turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we're about to talk about your love, your love to us. And this is a subject that demands a beautiful, majestic painting to describe your majestic and wonderful love to us. In fact, no painting will ever do it justice. Your love is infinite and magnificent. So we praise you for it this morning. And I I ask you for grace. I feel like one who is painting by numbers before this great subject. So I, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you would you paint this picture on the canvas of our hearts and of our minds? Would you grant us strength to really grasp this, to really get this, your love to us? I pray for myself that you would give me grace even right now to not, to not rest in whether or not this is a good sermon or not, but to simply rest in the love that you have already lavished upon me. Would you do that? And would you bless your people? And more than anything else, would you glorify your name? Would you cause us to just rejoice in who you are this morning? I pray. Amen. Well, I have a question to start. Um, have you ever known someone who said, said one thing and did something else? Me neither. <laughs> of course, uh, I don't look in the mirror that often, <laughs> as you can tell. But uh, think about a time when you observed this in another person. What did you think about beyond the just, you know, hypocrite? Um, What did you think about what they believe in when a pastor is discredited or a politician on TV? What did you think of their teaching or their belief system? See, I knew it. Just a phony. That doesn't, doesn't mean anything that guy was saying. Just phonies. Well, the trouble is, we're all susceptible to this. Except that for most of us, it's not revealed in a news conference, it's not revealed on TV, but in the ordinary details and choices of our lives. Our true ambitions, that is what we really want and what we really work to get, they reveal something about us and they eventually lead us somewhere. 
and where our ambitions lead will largely determine whether or not we glorify God in the ordinary details of life, in the ordinary days and moments, the grit and grain of our real lives, largely driven by our ambitions. God made us to have ambitions. The, The problem is not with ambition. The problem is the driving force behind our ambitions and where they're leading us. For too many of us, we profess one thing on Sunday, but our our ambitions from Monday through Saturday, they, they belie something entirely different, an entirely different belief system. We say that we have everything in Christ, but we depend so much on the boss liking us to get that promotion. Or... Or we churn late into the night. We say we trust Him, but we churn late into the night about whether this project will succeed or whether I match up against this other housewife or how to stop the other party from enacting this particular piece of legislation. We say we trust Him, but we churn and, we, and, and we, we're really enslaved to this. We're chained down by it. We're chained down by our unredeemed ambitions. Something's got to be done for many of us. We say that in His love we have life. But our lives often, frankly, they call us liars. We don't believe this. We're too often stuck in this, this morass of, of, of churning and pleasing men to get what we think we need. So how do we get free of this? How do we get free? Well, the answer today is very simple. It is to learn the love of God from God. To learn the love of God from God. The love of God can and must teach us, and not only teach us, Pastor Kurt said this at the beginning of the service, not only teach us, but transform our ambitions. Transform them so that they become God's ambitions. And armed with God's ambitions, well, watch out. Because then we will be a people who glorify God in the ordinary details of our lives and bless the world through our ordinary lives. Our ambitions must be transformed. But we don't do this. They're transformed by learning the love of God and being transformed by that love. So I, I pray today that God would teach us of His love and that it would transform us into the men and women that you and I were always meant to be a people freed from self because we're satiated in that love. We're satiated by this, the, the extravagance of His love. And being free and satisfied, we're, we're a people who are free to glorify God and, and bless the world just through the, the ordinary fabric of life. Well, this is exactly what the Thessalonians were doing. Paul says that they were a blessing to the entire subcontinent of Macedonia, with, of which Thessalonica was the, was the uh, capital. The believers all over the country knew of their love for, for them and for each other. Um, through this church, many people were blessed across this continent. The church actually was not wealthy. Um, and yet they, they gave food and money to people all across Macedonia. Not only to people in their own church, but people they would never meet. They lived lives of such goodness that it actually shocked the world. Paul was hearing it wherever he went, what, what that church in Thessalonica is doing. 
Look at how they love their own and look how they have loved us. And we don't even know them. <laughs> what, why? I mean, that, th- thank you, but why? What's going on? Now, at this point in the letter, Paul is probably answering their questions from an intervening letter. And um, last week, the issue was purity. This week, it's love. Next week, or the next time we're in Thessalonians, um, we'll be speaking about the Thessalonians' hope. Purity, love, and hope. The primary characteristics of of a mature church, of a growing church, of a faithful church. A church that's pure, that's living in love, and that has its, ho- its hope firmly fixed on Christ's soon return. To their question about love, Paul replies, you don't, you don't need to hear from anybody about this subject. I don't even know why you're writing me about it. <laughs> because you yourselves have been taught by God Himself how to love. You had a much better instructor than me. So I, I have very little to tell you about this. In fact, just to begin, I just want to encourage you. You don't need me to instruct you about love. So Paul says, God himself taught them something. He taught them Philadelphia, brotherly love. Now concerning brotherly love, again, verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. God Himself taught them Philadelphia. Now, agape love is that love that we can have towards anybody, anyone. But Philadelphia is this love that was reserved for only one's immediate family. Um, In the Greek culture of Paul's day, family members were expected to have this Philadelphia to each other, but not to anyone else. It was exclusive. We often put agape up as the supreme love, and it is. But brotherly love, Philadelphia, was unique. It was exclusive. It was limited to those of one's own immediate family. But Paul says, Thessalonians, you've been taught how to love one another. You've been taught Philadelphia by God Himself. Well, this Philadelphia is affection, loyalty, and service that has nothing to do with the other person. (laughs) Affection, loyalty, and service that has nothing to do with the other person. In fact, am I right? It's often in spite of the other person. (laughs) You think about your own family. Um, It actually has nothing to do with merit or attractiveness. It's a love that comes from having the same father. Philadelphia loves the brother for the father. It's just spending time together to honor and please Him. It's, it's seeing Jesus over the shoulder of that other brother that's right in front of you, of that sister. That's Philadelphia. But the Thessalonians didn't just know about this. They were living it. They were doing it. Paul says that their love was felt all across Macedonia, probably because although they were a poorer church, again, they were incessantly giving everywhere. Incessantly. They gave to poorer brothers and sisters all across the country. It was this blood brother kind of love that they demonstrated to those they could see and touch and those they would never meet. It made no difference, likable or or irritating, close or far away. 
They were loving the saints for the sake of their one father. For the sake of their father. And they were ambitious. They, they were known as being poor, but they wanted to make their father's name famous. They wanted to bring fame to his name. And so, they gave and they gave everywhere. They wanted to see his children loved and his name be made great. That became their overarching ambition. Everything else was subsumed into this one great ambition. To love his children and to see his name be made great. So they took their money, their food, and their time and they lavished it on brothers and churches everywhere across the country. But Paul would not have them rest on their their laurels. He urges them, in verse 10, to do this more and more. To keep on excelling in this demonstration of love. Keep going. The mature Christian doesn't stand still or ever arrive. Growth is not exceptional. It's normal for the Christian. It is normal for the Christian to excel. I wonder if in the back of his mind, Paul has in his mind Revelation 2, the Lord's warning to the church in Ephesus to to not lose that love that they once had, but to keep going. Keep going, he said. So Paul is still thinking of God's teaching, the, uh, teaching to them to love as he moves into the second part of his charge to them. And he says, and to aspire. And when he says aspire, he means uh, to consider your honor, to, to make it your life's ambition to do this. And then he says to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, it's often thought that the Thessalonians were quitting their jobs because they were so excited about the Lord's soon return. And in the next section, that's exactly what Paul begins to talk about, the Lord's soon return. And in his second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 3, Paul talks about this very same thing. Get to work, he says. Stop this laziness, this idleness. Get to work. And the thought is because some of them had quit their jobs because they thought, he's, he's coming back tomorrow. Why show up to work? You know, why? I'm not going to put up with that guy anymore. The Lord's coming soon. Um, and this is not a bad interpretation. But I think there's another option that better fits the, the exhortations, these three exhortations more precisely that, that Paul gives us here. And it, and it also fits better the, the overall life situation that the Thessalonians found themselves in. So, a little background here. The Romans hated manual labor. Oh, they hated it. They despised it. You, if you did anything that, that involved manual labor, you were automatically in a lower class. So the upper class gained income passively, often through political ambitions and political connections. Whether you were secure and wealthy depended on who you knew and the political connections you had. And whose back you scratched. And this went on down the social scale to the people in the church in Thessalonica. And this the system involved a system of patrons and clients. Patrons and clients. This, this system really made up the, the core of Roman political life. The patrons were basically just the prominent and the politically connected people of culture. And they would provide food and clothing to the lower classes, to members of the low, lower classes, to those people who could vote, 
as long as those people would support them in their political schemes. You know, I'll, I'll give you money and food for your family to take care of your family for maybe, I don't know, I don't know how long. If you will but go to your artisan guild, you manual laborer, and stir up your people to come and support me for my political rally next week, to get me elected to this office so that I can gain more income. Most of the believers in Thessalonica were probably lower class artisans. They were citizens who could vote, but they needed a connection to one of these wealthy patrons in order to get ahead in life. Many Thessalonian Christians would have had a patron who would feed and clothe their family if they would just get involved in politics a little bit more and support their patron. Get me elected. Well, this caused several problems, but one big one. In this system, they were increasingly dependent upon pleasing people for their daily sustenance. Though they were claiming the name of Christ in practice in their Monday to Saturday existence, they were really dependent upon the power of men to provide for them. In order to make a living, they couldn't remain, si- remain still or silent. They had to regularly get involved in politics. You know, protesting this. Showing up at this rally. Doing a favor for this person to please this other well-connected person so that this person could gain an advantage so that my patron could also gain an advantage so that I could get more money and clothing for my family. And more and more, what this did was it, it drew them away from simple, honest work. It drew them into the, the, the political system and the system began to dominate their lives. Maybe not on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, the cultural system began to define their priorities and their ambitions. Their ambitions became getting my patron elected. That's what really matters to me in life. Big problem. Big problem. They had been taught that work was instituted even before the fall in the garden, yet they were drawn to this disruptive, busy life that was dependent on others. Does this exist today? (laughs) Do Christians struggle with this today? Do Christians struggle with matching up their real-life ambitions with what they profess on Sunday? Yes, yes, yes. So Paul commands them, gives them a solemn command to, to make it their honor, to make it their core ambition in their Monday through Saturday life to be still. Be still. The colorful language that he's, he's using in the Greek here is he's basically saying, be tireless, be restless to be still. <laughs> to be still. Instead of minding the affairs of others, mind your own. To put it in the words of Ed Welch, or more accurately, Ed Welch's wife, um, fear God and know your duty. That's what Paul is telling them. Fear God and know your duty. And do your duty. Do the duty that God has put before you, not someone else's. And work for your sustenance instead of relying on the government or rich patrons to provide what you need. Uh, Does this apply to anything going on right now in our country? (laughs) Any kind of event where people are camping out in parks? (laughs) Um, I probably shouldn't start talking about that subject. 
What's it called? What are the, what are the campers called? What's that? Occupy, oh, Occupy Wall Street, yeah. I probably should not start talking about Occupy Wall Street. Okay, so I'm going to move on. All right, so Paul commands them, be honored. Make it your core ambition to be still. To not rely on someone else. But work with your hands. Work hard. And then Paul gives this charge for a massive reason in verse 12. God's reputation among the nations. How do the Thessalonians, um, how the Thessalonians live their lives was a key part of God's great commission. God's name was at stake, and so Paul wanted them to pay attention to how outsiders saw them. Not, not to please them, but to make sure that they were adorning God's name with their ordinary life, with their ambitions. Paul wants to make sure that their ambitions themselves are adorning, that they jive with God's massive love to them, with God's massive character. I mean, think of it from the, from the perspective of the, the other person, of an outsider. You claim a God who loves you with an everlasting love, who will, in his son's words, add all these things to you if you will but trust him. Okay. But all you do is talk about politics, and you order your life around the tax consequences of this or that. <clears throat> and at work, all you do is, is work the office, office politics instead of your own job. I see you. I, I see what you do. You love the, off, the, the boss's opinion more than actually doing a good job. What, it just doesn't jive with the God that you're telling me about. It seems that all you really trust in is better legislation that favors you or a boss that likes you. Does that, that, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't jive. When I visited your church, it's not the God that I heard about. You see the problem? You see the problem that Paul's trying to, to solve here? This is big. And a lot of us struggle with this. I've been there. I know what this is like. A lot of us struggle with this. Well, there is a solution. God being gracious God, there is a solution. Um, that's the text. So how do we do it? How are we transformed to be like them and to, obeys Paul's, to obey Paul's command? How do we do this? How do we get to be this kind of people whose ambitions align with God's? Well, I want to draw out today three implications from the text. Three implications that I hope will lead us to this transformation. To be truly transformed by something into people that glorify God when we don't even realize we're doing it. <laughs> to glorify God in the details of office life. The details of motherhood. The details of growing up. Well, the first implication is this. We must first be transformed by the love of God to us. We must first be transformed by the love of God to us. Not just taught, transformed. God's love to us in His Son is more than just a template. More than just a template to tell us, go now, you go love. It transforms us. When God extends His love and grace to His children, He, he doesn't just forgive us. Yes, He, he lavishes mercy upon us. But the, at the core of the gospel is something much grander, something much more amazing. That you and I, who were once rebels, hostile to our core to God, dead set against God, 
have not only been forgiven, have not only been shown mercy, but to us, God has said, I not only forgive you, but I make you my son. I now welcome you as a favored son of the king. Not because you deserved it, not because you did anything to warrant it, but we might say, just because. Just because that is who I am. Just because I choose to. Just because I choose to love you. And in choosing to love you, you have everything. You are not only, not, and then not only my son, my favored son, you are an heir of everything that I have. It is yours, my beloved daughter. It is yours. It is yours. Just because I have chosen to love you. That is the God that we have. That is the God who saves. Doesn't just forgive. Oh, he lavishes extravagant love upon his children. Extravagant love. This love transforms us. Transforms us. God didn't need to save any of us. He didn't need you. God doesn't need anything. He's fine all by himself. He's he's fully satisfied without any one of us. He just did it because he loves you by his own gracious choice. It's just God being God. It's just our Father being our infinitely loving Father. Praise his name. So it transforms us. We're no longer rebels. We're not just forgiven. I don't know if some of you struggle with this. I I know sometimes I I fall into this trap. Do you ever think that God has forgiven you, but then He's the rest of your life He's kind of looking at you like this with his arms crossed? You know, shaking his head at you. Kind of disgusted, but you know, you're still forgiven, so come on in. You know. I guess. No, not in the least. Not in the least. A God who willingly put forward His own Son and that Son willingly being put forward upon that cross to take the Father's wrath for all of your sin, to drink it in fully, to fully quench the Father's wrath. The wrath that my sins deserved. That is the love that this Father has lavished upon each and every one of His children. And He does it as a gift out of His grace. Where am I? I don't know. Um, There's amazing love. Amazing love. So this is not just some little thing that, that, that just says, okay, now here's your, here's your template for loving. This love transforms. This love transforms. And what this means is when you are His child, it makes no difference what your father was like. No difference. I don't care what he did to you. I don't care what he didn't do for you. You are now free to be like your real father. His love transforms us and frees us from our past. Frees us from what we have done and what has been done to us. You are free. <clears throat> so then we will find not only ourselves transformed, but also our relationships 
Because we Christians, we're, we're not just holders of, of, a, you know, of, a, of a common theological system. We really are brothers and sisters with the same gloriously loving Father. Do you, do you believe that? We, we really are. As we've said in Sunday school over the summer, you and I, if you are in Christ, we are more brothers and sisters than your own brothers and sisters, than your, than your earthly brothers and sisters. Because of our Father. So when you hear me call you brother or sister, just it's not that I'm trying to use you know uh, fundamentalist religious <laughs> terms. It's I'm just calling it as I see it. <laughs> we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your family. For real, it really is. This really is your family because of our common Father. You ever experience that when you, you meet somebody from maybe from another country or you, and you realize the, the, the sweetness that, that instantly is there? Not because of that other person. They might actually be quite strange being from another country. But it's our common Father, this, this common bond and, and the love that has been bestowed upon us by this Father. That causes this this bond that comes out of nowhere. Kind of felt it this morning with Graham. Graham's, Graham is visiting us from uh, outside of London. He visits from time to time. He's sitting over here somewhere. Um, you really are my brother and my sister. But too often this doesn't sink in, and it doesn't. This truth does not affect our relationships. Just pecking on the surface. Think about those that you have the greatest affection for in this church or, or, or even in the worldwide church. How many of these affections are driven solely by the same, by, by having the same Father? How many of those affections really, really come from that source? I would say all too often, not at all. For too many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, the word love is really the last word we should use to describe our Christian relationships. Friendly, yes. Helpful, maybe. But brotherly love, because we're, you and I are both adopted and loved by the same Father, it, doesn't, it just doesn't happen too often, sadly. Um, a little editorial note here. I, I know that um, in the past, some of you have felt, when it comes to gospel communities, you've felt um, a, 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 a forcedness. Some of you have felt like I'm being, I was forced into this group. Okay, all right. I, I want to acknowledge that. But I also want to say the other side of it is what I'm talking about here, that we are brothers and sisters and that it has nothing to do with the other person's attractiveness or merit, is really the reason why Pastor Steve and the elders sought to do this, uh, to, to give us rails to run on. It was actually a gracious choice to encourage us into those kinds of relationships where we are, we are fast brothers and sisters, not because I like you. <laughs> Maybe you, I don't like you. Maybe you irritate me. And yet, it, when we get into those situations and we, maybe we feel that forceness because I, I don't feel much affinity with you, whoever you are, plant, uh, that... that that it's not about you. And it's not actually about me either. 
It's about our common Father. Well, the sting of this should dig even a little deeper when we consider that the love of the brethren is really the Christian's trademark. I mean, we're to be known by our love, right? All right. But hear me say that the answer is not trying harder. That is not the answer. Kids, do you hear me say that? The answer is not trying harder. The answer is transformation. Being changed by something outside of yourself. By something done to you. That is the answer. I will say it again. We must not only see the example of love in Jesus, but we must be transformed by this love. So this comes first by simple, miraculous faith in Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done for you. That He stood in your place, that He took this wrath that you deserved from the Father, willingly took it for, upon Himself for you. That you would believe that Jesus did this for you and you will be called the child of God. You will be one of the family of God. You will be a favored son or daughter of the king. The love we're talking about today is impossible and it is worthless without God. It is worthless before God without this faith. To be transformed, you must believe. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest in my extravagant love for you. Rest. Turn from your sins and follow Him, and He Himself will teach you about this love. He'll teach you what love really is. So picture it again. Jesus the Son looking to the Father Willingly allowing Himself to be placed upon that cross and receiving the Father's awesome wrath all so that we could be called favored sons and daughters of the King. Yes, favored. Favored over others. God loves the world, right? Everyone knows this. God loves the world. Um, But He loves me and all His children with a unique love. With a special love a special category of love. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, God says. And this is before they were even born. God loves His children with a unique love. God loves His children with an everlasting, unbreakable love from eternity to eternity. To use Pastor Steve's analogy, um, I, I love the neighbor's kid, in our case, who happens to be named Megan. I want to protect her from harm and I want to do good to her. I want to show her and her family agape love. Um, But my Megan, forget about it. (laughs) Forget about it. I would die for that Megan. (laughs) I would die for her. And I am God's child because God actually did die for me (laughs) that I might live. This is amazing love. And that man sitting next to you, 
And that couple planting a church in Turkey, and that woman in that little church down in Utah County, they're all the same. They're all the same. They've all been loved by the same love, by the same Father. They've all been purchased into the kingdom by the same mortal life of Jesus Christ, just like you have. They all have the same firstborn brother, the same supremely gracious Father. So the first to do here for us is not to love more. It's not, come on, get to loving. The first and foremost to do for us today is to be taught by God Himself of His own love to us. Okay, so what's the secret? How's this work? Well, I'll tell you. Um, Actually, I'll let John Stott tell you. Um, Preaching at a conference on the Christian life in Toronto, he said this, You are here so you can learn the secrets of Christian growth and living. Well, there are no secrets. (laughs) You read the Bible and you pray. (laughs) God doesn't save us just so that He can tell us what to do in His Bible. That's not the Bible's purpose. Far from it. From start to finish, the Bible is crying out through the lives of real people that God loves His children with a steadfast, eternal, unbreakable, strong love. From start to finish, when you get Him, you get everything. You get everything. I I love Psalm 36. I've been reading it a lot lately. The, The psalmist gives the reason why he doesn't need to follow in the steps of the wicked. Why he doesn't need to follow down their path to get what he needs, to get what he wants. He says that he can take refuge under God's wings, that he can feast on the abundance of his house, that he can drink of his river of delights. With him is found the fountain of a real life. In his light do we see light, the psalmist says. There is only one real life. And it's found in the extravagant love of our Father. There is no other life. There's only death. There is only one path to real life. Real abundant life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as as, uh, gloriously and immortally emblazoned above the urinal in the men's restroom, uh, wrote this. The secret of the early Christians, the, the early Protestants, Puritans, and Methodists, was that they were taught about the love of Christ And they became filled with a knowledge of it. Once a man has the love of Christ in his heart, you need not train him to witness. He will do it. He will know the power, the constraint, the motive. Everything is already there. It is a plain lie to suggest that people who regard this knowledge of the love of Christ as the supreme thing are useless, unhealthy mystics. The servants of God who have most adorned the life in the history of the Christian church have always been men who have realized that this is the most important thing of all, and they have spent hours in prayer seeking His face and enjoying His love. The man who knows the love of Christ in his heart can do more in one hour than the busy type of man can do in a century. God forbid that we should ever make of activity an end in itself. Let us realize that the motive must come first and that the motive must ever be the love of Christ. So be taught the love of God from His Word. Let Him tell you Himself in His own words. The, the next time you sit down with your Bible and you open it, don't think of it as actually that you're actually doing something. Think of it as being reminded 
of the lavish love that He has uh, lavished upon you. Do it to be reminded of what you already have in your Father. That you have amazing love. And then pray. Pray with Paul from Ephesians 3 that God would give you the strength, the strength to comprehend, to really, to really get right along with the rest of us. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? Pray that, that you and I would really get it. That we would really know it in a way that's, that's far beyond human knowledge. That we would know it and, and act upon it. Because, as, as Paul ends that prayer in Ephesians 3, if, if we get this, we, we will no longer be filled with ourselves, worshiping at the idol of self, having our ambitions driven by that, by that idol of self. But we will be filled, Paul says, with all the fullness of God once we comprehend how He has loved us, once we comprehend His love. That is the path to being filled with all the fullness of God. So pray for this. Pray, I, I cannot do this. No pastor can do this. Only God can do this in you. So I exhort you, I implore you, brother and sister, ask God for this. Beseech Him that He would do a work in you, that He would transform you by His love. And then you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You won't be filled with self. Pray that He would teach you His love. All right, well, that's the first implication, that we must be taught and transformed by God's love. Implication number two, God's love can and must, it must transform us to increasingly love the saints here and everywhere. God's love must transform us to increasingly love the saints here and everywhere. Well, back to this word ambition. The Thessalonians had been transformed by the love of God. They didn't just, they didn't just have everything from God. They had God. And in God, they had everything. And He Himself. So they were set free. They were set free to train their ambitions upon His glory and the love of the, of the saints. The love of their brothers and sisters around the world. They were set free from this, this dark dominion of, of, of having enough, of getting more. Because they already had the best. They already had everything. This is true freedom. To be set free from, from got to get more. Got to get more. Just a little bit more and then I'll be okay. They were free. So why exhort them this way? Why doesn't he just praise them and be thankful for it and move on? Well, it has, again, to do with the nature of the love of God. God's love always produces abundant life because His love is an ocean of infinite depth that, that none of us can even begin to begin to exhaust. So there was always more. Always more. And as we live lives of increasing dependence and increasing, let me say, consumption of His love, that it is our very food, our very bread, that we will increasingly spill out in love to our brothers and sisters. We will increasingly be filled with an ambition to see that the brothers and sisters, His children, are loved. Our ambitions will be transformed. As we explore the depths of this love, it's, it's trans. Transforming power should continue to move us and mold us. It builds in us 
a divine strength to give up. To give up. To give up that ambition for more power, for more admiration from people, for more money, for more security, anywhere else outside of God. Because we continually realize and rest in the fact that we have everything in Him. A normal, maturing Christian is one whose ambitions are increasingly transformed by an increasing knowledge of the surpassing worth of the love of God. And that will always result in increasing love to the saints. So, so when Paul tells them to excel still more, uh, he's really just calling them to do what they're, they've already been tightly sprung by God to do. <laughs> uh, they were wound up and ready by God. To excel still more. I, he, he wasn't telling them anything they weren't ready to do. Are you? <laughs> A good indicator is not whether you have this love thing already mapped out in your mind and your life, but in the questions, perhaps, that you ask. Maybe, hey, Ray Tabladillo of the Missions Committee, I saw that new bulletin board out there. Uh, if God had blessed someone with a little extra income this year and they wanted to support church planting somewhere, what country would you suggest? I wonder how many church plants in India we could support just on the maintenance costs of our condo in Park City. I know I'm getting in people's kitchens now. Hey, Pastor Steve, do we know of any struggling churches in Utah that preach the gospel that we could, I don't know, help? Hey, gospel community leader. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of dense. I don't pay attention very well. Uh, who's, who's lonely in our group? Uh, I just want to help. I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I know God loves me, and so how do I help? Who could use my time? Who's lonely? Who, who needs real friendship? Or perhaps it's not a question to men, but God. God, will you give me wisdom and awareness to, to love the hurting folks in my gospel community? Would, would you give me... Uh, actually, would you remind me of how much you have loved me so that I can love them and just a, just a snippet, just a, just a taste of how you have loved me? God... Go ahead and pray this, by the way. I I give you permission to pray what I'm about to say. God, will you grant me to make more money so that our family can give it away to support church planting in the Ukraine? Or maybe, God, will you give us as a family a a united desire? Will Will you bring us together as one unit Would you give us a desire to just let go of the things of this world to support your work of the gospel in the Salt Lake Valley? Or maybe, God, will you bring along a buyer for this couch so that I can support the missions trip to Eastern Europe? And would you give me the opportunity to tell the buyer why I'm selling it? How much you love me? I will say this. Only a person who has everything can pray this way. You, many of you probably heard of our, our friend uh, Rachel, who's gone on to be the Lord. I know I've told this story several times in this church, but it's so worth telling again. I don't, I don't care. Um, our old church, uh, 
The pastor went on a missions trip to Serbia, I think it was. Rachel was a part-time secretary in a Christian radio station in Colorado Springs. Didn't have two pennies to rub together. and uh, But she wanted to help the trip in some way. So she had two couches, <laughs> and she sold one. <laughs> she sold one to a friend that she knew, and that friend... Uh, I don't remember the reason why, but they sold it to another friend, unbeknownst to Rachel. Then that friend moved and no longer had the need of the couch. And so what do you think God did? (laughs) Rachel, we have this couch. (laughs) Could you use another? I noticed upstairs you don't have any furniture. Could you use this couch? Did Rachel know in that moment the love of God? Oh, my goodness, yes. That's what I remember thinking. As she was telling us this story, man, God loves you. (laughs) Rachel didn't have much, but she had everything in the love of her Lord. Only a person who truly has everything can sell her extra couch for her church's missions trip. She knew her loving father has lots of couches. That wasn't the issue. She sold it, and the God of couches and Craigslist gave it to her back, gave it back to her. The issue was that she loved her church and she wanted more workers for his harvest. She knew the love of God and it showed up in her ambitions. It showed up where no one could see it. Our pastor never even knew, by the way. (laughs) Never knew she did that. This is the abundant life of faith. To step out in faith, leaning hard into the love of God and watching Him move and and provide in ways that, that create joy that nothing else in this world can do. This is abundant life. So, 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 Christian, go on. Get this life. Read your Bible. Pray. Bask. Drink. Satiate yourself in the magnificent, unending, infinite love of God to you. It's right there. Go get it. Remind yourself of it. Feast upon it. Drink from the river of His delights. Step out and excel still more. You're already a favored child of the King. You are insanely wealthy with His love. Step out in the wealth that you have. Live the life that you are called to. The ocean of His love awaits you. Will you dive in? Well, implication three. The love of God frees us to live ordinary life independent of men to bring fame to His name. The love of God frees us to live ordinary life independent of men to bring fame to His name. So our ambitions are now free to be firmly trained on God's glory since we have Him and we have His kingdom and His righteousness. We're free to live independent of men, of their approval, and of their provision. You are free. You have everything in Him. You are free. So we're free to slow down and stop. But again, not just be still. Not just, don't just hear the command, be still. But hear, be still and know that I am God. Know that I love you. Know that I love you with an everlasting love so you can stop churning. 
You can stop racing. You can rest in me. Too many of us are caught in this cycle of busyness. Lord knows, I, I fall into this sometimes. Yolanda knows as she sees me blow in and out of the office. This happens to us who are doing God's work. We're all doing God's work. But too often, to quote A.W. Tozer, too often in doing the Lord's work, we forget the Lord of the work. When it comes to people with hurts and needs, we're so busy that we have no time or no margin in our lives to help. It's as if we're on this parade float, you know, floating down life, waving to the hurting person, smiling, tossing a bit of biblical candy, and then we keep on moving, never stopping. We're just too busy because we need to get going to get something better. But in fact, we've forgotten that all we need is found in Christ so we can stop and rest and love the brother, love the sister. You're free to stop getting. You are. You're free. Paul commands us to be still because you already have all you need in Him. We can trust Him, but He always does what's best for this. David knew this as he wrote Psalm 131. It's only three verses long. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'm not churning inside or outside uh, about what's going on in my life. I'm not engaging in office politicking or, 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 or even family politicking or any other kind of politicking to get what's mine. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to go there. Why? Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. How does he do this? Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist has put his hope firmly. He has trained his ambitions and his hope firmly on the steadfast love and grace of God. So he is free to rest. And free to work. His love draws us to trust him for all things. So then we don't need to get involved in politics, either government politics or office politics or church politics or family politics, to gain advancement or to succeed. We don't need to get bogged down in the affairs of others. Now, Paul is not prohibiting all involvement in politics. Go ahead, vote. Be informed. But we Christians must ask ourselves always why we're politicking. Is the love of Christ driving us? Are we resting in that? Or is it placing uh, our trust in something else? Are we doing it for His glory or just so we don't have to work as hard? Just so life is more comfortable for us in our country. Is that why we're doing it? To give an example, I I believe that... uh, there will come a day in our country when churches get taxed on real estate or tithing or something, we will begin to be taxed. So then, what will be our response? Petitions? Letter writing? Picketing? Calling Rush Limbaugh? No. Paul commands us to do something else entirely because we're people loved by God. That we're not to worry and wonder what's going on and to disrupt the process. We're instead to trust Him. 
to trust Him. And then to not devolve and, 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 and spin all of our wills and spend all of our time and energy in the machinations of politics. But instead, when that law gets passed, we work harder. We work harder to make more money so that we can pay Uncle Sam what he rightly calls us to give. Why? Because there is something much larger than income and taxes at stake here. There's much larger, something much larger at stake than the balance sheet and the income of our church. It's found in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There will come a day when we will be called to account for how we brought fame to the name of God in the everyday details of life. What will you say? What will it look like? What will it feel like on that day? What will it feel like to to stand before Him and give an account for a life lived forgetting what's mine? What's at stake is the, the fame of His name. So we need to keep in mind the goal. We need to keep in mind that our very good comes from His glory. That our glory is found, or that our good is found in His glory. We need to keep heaven in mind. We need to keep the goal in mind. John Calvin famously wrote to a suffering widow in France and instructed her that as she faces the various sufferings of life, to do so with one foot raised. (laughs) One foot raised, ready for heaven. (laughs) One foot raised, ready to step into eternity. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, today, um, go ahead, work hard in your job. Be the best doctor or chemist or teacher or student that you can be. But do it with one foot raised for heaven. One foot raised, looking towards glory. Go ahead. Be the best parent. Strive. Work. Study. But do it with one foot raised. Eat. Drink. Play. Do it all with one foot raised. One foot raised for God's glory in anticipation of His soon return. In anticipation of that day when you will hear from Him, well done, good and faithful servant. And how does anyone hear that? By living a life of faith. By trusting in His love. By being transformed by His love. Only by being transformed by His love and resting in it. And all of our work and all of our moving and all of our doing, resting in it. Only then can we live a life with one foot raised for heaven. But if so, then we will live lives that glorify Him. And bring pleasure to Him and fame to His name. And we will be a people who is a blessing to all people. To the praise of His name. Let's pray. God, would You take my very, very fallible words and cause them to be quickly forgotten except for those words which are your words. Grant us grace to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. 
Would you grant us grace to be transformed by your word? To not just be students of it, to not just be taught by it, but to be transformed by it. For the praise of your name and for the good of your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.